0: Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Acts chapter 5 verse 1 through 11.
1: Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes for so much but Peter said to her how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord behold the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last when the young men came in they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon upon all who heard of these things
0: so we're going to take an offering right now. Um, <laughs> so we're planning, we're planning the sermon series for Acts, and I, you know, I'm dividing this out, and I look, I'm like, this is the week I'm in, what do I have? This one? <laughs> like, what am I going to do with this? have of you heard this story before? Very interesting story, and as we read this, it should bring up all kinds of questions, and doubts, and concerns, and thoughts, and we're going to jump into to this one. Um, Because I I think there's a lot we can learn here as we get into this. Uh, So on Instagram, there's an account that popped up a few months ago, maybe up to a year ago now. And the account name is called Preachers in Sneakers. Anyone seen this one? You can go on there and look at it. And so what it is, this guy that started noticing this trend of kind of the big, I'll use the term, celebrity pastors, And the clothes that they would wear. And at times very outrageous um, priced clothes. So, for example, like a pair of shoes, it would be $5,000. Which some of you may be like, well, that's nothing. I'd love to borrow your shoes sometime, all right? (laughs) Go straight to the pawn shop. (laughs) Jeans that maybe were $700 pair of jeans, you know, a bag from, is it Gucci? Is that the name of it? Yeah, something, Whatever. Just very outrageous things. So this, this guy started this Instagram account where he would take these pictures that you know, were on the internet and put them in there and then list the price of the outfits, which some of the preachers did not appreciate very well. So it's interesting, an account, preachers and sneakers, that, that, that kind of shows maybe the outrageous spending of, of people. And, and my goal with that is not to throw stones because here's the reality. I spend more at Bass Pro than those boys do. Okay? But it's interesting, if we had an account, Instagram account, account, called Preachers and Their Girlfriends, Preachers and the list of people they've murdered, like, it wouldn't fly, would it? How interesting, though, that something that shows spending a lot of money on certain things, it's like, oh yeah, that's—I mean—that's normal. One of the things that that I, I believe is that greed may be the most under-talked about sin struggle in the church. Right? It's easy. Again, we have a young congregation, especially married people. It's easy to point fingers on sexuality and some of those things. Um, but greed is something we must continue to talk about. It's interesting. There's a couple here that drops dead because of greed and some of the things related to that, if you read the New Testament, no other person drops dead for something. Like there's some awful, like read 1 Corinthians, there's some awful things that are happening around uh, marriage, Mer- just some awful things happening in the church. But someone drops dead and it revolves around this idea of greed. So one of the things that Luke is doing, I'm going to back up before we get into that passage in chapter 5 to show you some context. Luke is giving us an account of this early church. I mean, Jesus has died a handful of years ago. This is the first church in Jerusalem. This first movement called Christianity is beginning to spread. And Luke gives us an account of this. And one of the things that as we read Acts over and over and over again, here's what you're going to see. I think two main marks of these New Testament believers. And that is a boldness to share the gospel. Like evangelistic boldness is there all throughout. And then a radical view of their finances. As Luke shows us, what's a Holy Spirit-filled church? What's a Holy Spirit-filled believer look like? You will see these two things keep coming up. So go back, Acts chapter 4, verse 31. He he gives us just a snapshot, again, of these early days. And when they had prayed, these disciples, the place in which they were gathered, together was shaken... And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, now I want you to circle that. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to get in your mind, like, what vision do you have in your mind right now? When you hear they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe what many of us have in mind is this worship service gathering where everyone's like, Whoa, and we're getting all excited. And that's what it looked like for the Holy Spirit to come on. I'm not saying that can't be. But I want you to see what the result of a Holy Spirit coming are filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. One of the marks we will point out all through the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes on the believers in power, they preach the gospel. That's what happens. We hear? Yeah, they preach the gospel. One of the things in our culture right now in the American church is this thing called sensationalism, which is this heightening of we've got to have this Ultimate experience when we come to worship, and this Holy Spirit was there because I got goosebumps. Guys, go to a YouTube concert, you'll get the same thing. Now, some of you are like, Who's YouTube? Look it up. You're welcome. You're welcome. When the Holy Spirit comes on the believers, you see boldness to share the gospel being the result. He keeps going. Verse 32 Now, the full number of those who were believed were one heart and soul. And is it distributed to each as it had need? One of the marks of this early spirit-filled church was evangelistic boldness and a radical view of finances and possessions. The result of the resurrection of Jesus for these early believers was a tighter bond with one another and a looser grasp on their stuff. the mark of the Holy Spirit in these people. and so, and Luke gives us an account. He's like, they, they, they brought them and they sold houses and they sold fields and they sold stuff and they brought it together and then they used that to take care of needs. Among them, out in the city, like if you read just history, take out even the Bible, just read world history. It's some of the accounts of the leaders, the government leaders, city leaders, kings, from this time period when the early Christians start Growing, one of the things the unbelieving world is astonished by is how they like take care of people. How there is like they take care of the poor, like these early, like they hate these Christians, but they can't find anything wrong with them. They're mad at them because they don't want them, but they're doing so much good in the city that they can't live without them. It's one of the marks of these early believers of this early church. Now, here's the question why? Why would they come and sell their property to give to needy people? This is crazy, because Jesus told them to. Luke 12, 33, Jesus, to these disciples, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourself money bags that don't grow old. With the treasure that's in heaven that does not fail. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. This is crazy. These disciples are doing what Jesus told them to do. I've been wrestling with this passage. I haven't preached in like a month, I think. So I've had a month just continuing to stew on this and wrestle with this, and I keep asking myself, "This seems radical, doesn't it?" And anyone else like, "Holy cow, should it be?" Is a question that just keeps coming to me. It's like, if I'm Daniel and trying to follow Jesus, like, should should this mark of my life be this tighter bond to Jesus and one another and to His church, and this looser bond to stuff? And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. I can't do that on my own. I like to spend money on me. He keeps going, chapter 4, verse 36. So he's going to set up the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And he's going to give us a different example first. Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which you've heard of Barnabas probably. It's the first mention of his name, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas, a Levite a native of Cyprus. So Luke is always careful to to cite his sources and make sure you know he's not making things up. Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow. Like real estate's worth money. (laughs) Worth real money. And Barnabas, he sells it. He, He a piece of property. We don't know how big. We don't know how much. But he sells it and he brings it to the church, to be used for the work of God. It's the first mention of Barnabas. We'll see him over and over throughout the, the rest of Acts. Side note, one of the things that I've seen again and again in my days in ministry is that I've often seen someone call, let me try that again, seen God call someone to sacrificial generosity right at the same time he's calling to them to a great work in their life. That those two seem to come Side by side. This call into ministry, a call into vision, of a calling of what God can do to you may come at the same time, this call of radical obedience with finances. I remember I'm 25, 26, 27, somewhere in that age range. I'm a school teacher and a coach. I'm wrestling with, I'm leading our youth ministry at our church, volunteer. I'm wrestling with a call to ministry, to work with college students. And I'm fighting through that. And I remember like as I'm thinking and praying and and working through things, I just felt this like sense that I've got to do something that's like hurts. It's sacrificial. And that's the first time I gave, I gave a car away. Emily and I did. We gave a car to someone that needed it. Now, don't have in your mind a Cadillac, because it wasn't. But to a 26-year-old, it stung. It hurt. As I look back, I see that. I can, I can take myself back. I can remember running. I was running a lot in those days and just wrestling through this as a big mark in my life for God then to call me into ministry for his service. Often seen, God calls someone to extreme generosity, sacrificial generosity, as he calls them to a gospel impact. Christians never assume that God would not invite you into a radical step of obedience at any point in your life. So that's the context for Acts chapter 5 in this story. A snapshot of how this early church is marked by this evangelistic boldness and this, this extreme generosity with their stuff and their possessions. A story of this guy named Barnabas that sold it all, or not sold, sold a piece of property and gave it to the church to be used. Then, right into this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 1, chapter 5. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So Ananias and Sapphira have seen this radical generosity spreading through the church. They're watching people come and bring gifts to the church, selling their possessions to give so they can take care of the people around them, and then they can begin to send out, missionaries to to plant new churches and they're watching this and they see Barnabas come and Barnabas sells a piece of property comes and gives all their money all their money to it and Ananias and Sapphira say we want to look like Barnabas and so they sell a piece of property but they don't give all of it they only give part of it and they drop dead now this is not about money I don't even think it's about how much. Like one of the things I want us to, because it's easy here to to look at an ice and Sapphira and think, "Oh, you evil people, guys!" They sold a property and gave presumably a large amount of that proceeds to the church, right? Another thing we look at here, when, when they do this, Peter says to them, "Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit?" Again, when you first read this, you may think, "Oh, these are like unbelievers that have infiltrated the church." No, they're Christians. who sell property, but give it under the assumption to the rest of the people that they've done just what Barnabas did. The problem is not how much they gave, nor did they give the full amount. The problem was their deceiving hearts in it. That's the problem. And that's why Peter says in verse 4, he says to him, while your your land remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Here's what Peter's saying to him. Ananias, Sapphira, like, that was your land. You didn't have to sell it. Like, while it was your land, it was yours. Here's what he even says. Hey, when you guys sold the land, you didn't have to give any of it. That's what Peter tells them. It's not about that you didn't give X amount. It's the fact that you did it under this disguise of really spiritual living. Peter's like, Ananias, Sapphira, listen. If your heart wasn't in it, don't do it. That's what he just told him. Just don't pretend that you are. True Christianity is not about conforming to a religious subculture, expectation. It's about our hearts being transformed into the people Jesus wants us to be. You, you guys heard Romans 12:1? Uh, A lot of you have memorized, do not be uh, conformed to the world, but be transformed. You guys heard that passage? Yeah? We heard it? Yeah. oftentimes using that, like, don't look like the world out there. Can I I give just a little bit of liberty with that passage? Don't be conformed to church subculture. But be transformed by Jesus. See, Ananias and Sapphira... (coughs) They're doing what other people are doing. They're doing what appears to be a really holy, godly thing, but the reality is there's no transformation happening. They would have been better to say to this, Peter, I know Barnabas sold sold land. I know a lot of people are doing that. Here's the reality, Peter, our hearts aren't there yet. There's not. We sold this land, and and we're going to give because we want our hearts to be there, and maybe in doing this, God will teach us the next time. Like I think Peter would have said, "Yeah, come on, let's do this." But they gave with the heart, being, "I want to look like Barnabas. I want to fit into that." Much of what we call spiritual growth may be our conforming to a religious subculture, not actually becoming like Jesus. I'm talking to myself. Let me say it again. Much of what we may call Christian growth in our lives may be more about fitting into a subculture. And I think that's what's happening here with Ananias and Sapphira and why God chooses to judge them on the spot. Like one of the measures of God's control of our heart is obedience with our finances. And if there's one area that I don't wanna let go of, anyone with me, it's my money. And the mark of my growth is not even how much I give, but the heart in which I give what I give. So here's the question that always comes up in a passage like this is, well how, how much should I give? Right? Ananias and Pharaoh, like, they, they were judged because they didn't give, and, and I want to be generous like as I look at this early church, like many of you I, I think with pure hearts are like, I, I want to be that. I want to be a generous person. I want to be someone that's learning to trust God with my money. Like, how, how much do I do? Uh, and so, there's always this question. Any of, any of you guys heard the, the term tithe? Anyone heard this? Yeah, we hear do it. Do I have a congregation? Any, any? Balcony, tithe, anyone heard it? Okay. So, this tithe is, is oftentimes what's taught in churches is what Christians should give. Tithe means a, ten, a tenth, 10%. And the word tithe came from the Old Testament of this call for when, when God is, is raising up his people, the Israelites, they were called to give a tenth to the Levites, which are the people who were in charge of the schooling, the, the uh, religious, all the stuff that happened in the temple. Like, so an Israelite would give a tenth towards that. And that's where the word tithe came. So then a lot of teaching in churches as well, a tithe is 10%, and that's what Christians are supposed to give is 10%. There's a problem with that. There's a few problems with that. Well, first of all, Israelites didn't give 10%. Actually, the average is about 20% of what they gave because they had a tithe that they gave, and then they had other offerings they also gave. So historians say that most Israelites, kind of Old Testament days, gave about 20% of their income to the work of God. Here's the other problem with just taking this idea of tithe and saying, okay, Christians, 10%, that's what you need to do, is the New Testament scripture says nothing about tithing, that that, that should keep going, but here's the other thing, it never says it shouldn't. If you look at the New Testament, if I have people, how, how much should I give? I, I can't point you to a verse. Um. Here's one thing Jesus said. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe. This is the only time Jesus mentioned tithe. Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and love for others. Here's what he then tells him These things, the tithe, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus didn't say, Hey, Pharisees, you tithe because that's what you guys are doing, but you don't have to do that anymore. No, he's like, you should do that, but let's love people and not be so mean while you're doing it. If I want to point you as a believer to what you should give, what I should give, here's the call, I think, in the New Testament, New Testament. radical, faithful generosity. Well, Hood, how much is that? I don't know. For some of you, 3% is sacrificial generosity. For some of you, one percent. For some of us, 15% doesn't even make us sweat. A guy I know um, ties 90%, he lives on 10% of his income. My job as a pastor is not to tell you how much you're supposed to give, but one of the things I think Jesus does here and the Spirit does is present to us this call of what does it look like to give sacrificially and generously. Because that's the New Testament model. Like, here's what the disciples didn't say. Man, Jesus has risen, he's commissioned us to go share the gospel. Man, I'm so glad that tithe thing is done. Now we get to keep all of our money. They didn't. Like, the resurrection fueled in them this desire to keep giving and keep sharing and keep spreading the gospel. Evangelistic boldness, and a radical view of finances. So I can't tell you how much you should give. Not going to. Um, Whether you give 1% or 50%, one of the the things the Bible teaches is this idea of giving our first fruits to God. And for a young congregation, I want us to make sure we understand this. So this idea of first fruits, if you think most of the Bible is written in the agricultural society, so that means if I harvest a field of wheat, my first fruits... That I'm supposed to give as an offering to God. We're literally the first ones that came into the barn, with this idea that if I give my first of my wheat, I'm trusting that God's going to bring the supply of the rest. What first fruits is not? Let me harvest my whole wheat field. Make sure it didn't rain or I didn't get any. Let me see what I have. And now I'm going to trust God. That's not. That's not first fruits. So the call, I believe, of believers is faithful, radical generosity, to be generous. What's that look like for you? I don't know, but here's what I think I can say is an invitation from God, give me your first fruits. Here's what that means, very practically. Whatever your income is, and you're lining out your expenses for the month, here's what first first fruits are. God, I believe you've called me to give this, and I'm gonna give it on day one of the month. And then... God, I'm going to adjust how I live the rest of that month based on what I have left. Not, God, I'm going to live the way I want to live all month, and then the last day, I'm going to give you what's left over. Do we see something wrong with that? We sang this song earlier When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. Here's the heart behind that song that we sing. Jesus, if you are who you say you are and you are the source of all joy, I need nothing else. The only way you will learn that is to step into, I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna say no to self, and God, I'm gonna see, is that all I need? There's a cool invitation in that song. But a lot of us, what we do is we say, well, I'm going to do my thing, and then God, I'm just going to give you something in the end, and we're never learning, ultimately, that that Jesus is what we need. That the source of joy is him, not more stuff. So believers in America, the average of Christians in America that go to church, that call themselves Christians, I don't know what it is for our church. This is just in America. They give 3% of income. 3%. Which then I think this other question for me raises. What if believers just on the minimum start of a 10% what could God do among us? What could God do? Um I have a long way to go in this. I like, I like stuff. I can go to Bass Pro and spend a lot of money real quick. For Emily and I, the way since since we've been married, we've always given 10 percent at least to local church. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying that's what we've done, and then. Usually we're giving above and beyond to support residents or missionaries or initiatives like the Forward Campaign. We're doing more. We've given two different cars away. And again, they weren't Cadillacs. But to us, it was a lot. And we still have a long way to go. What would it look like to begin to ask the Spirit of Jesus some really hard questions about how you are orienting your life and your finances. For some of us, that just starts with the order, that starts with first fruits. For some of us, that's that's like faithfulness. I just give a little bit here and there randomly, and maybe it's like, I need to be faithful. For some of us, that's, I need to double my percentage I'm giving. One of the things we gotta be careful about, though, here, here's, a, here's a phrase that comes in as we talk about giving a lot, As we say, well, I'm going to be generous with my possessions. Which on one hand, you should be. Like when Emily and I chose our house, we chose our specific house because it has this big open floor plan because we have people over all the time. Lots of people over all the time. So I, I want to be generous with things in my house. But we have to be careful about, well, I'm generous with my possessions, and, and here's why. To use that as a reason to, I need to buy a bigger boat. Because... If I had a bigger boat, I can invite more non-Christians onto my boat, and I can share the gospel. Come on, don't tell me you haven't been there. (laughs) If I had a a truck, then I could help people move. Well, the reality is I don't want to help anyone move. It would just be for me. Here's mine. I've done this before. If I had that new Telecaster guitar, I could lead worship, and God's people would be encouraged to sing. We can play, can I tell you, that's the game Ananias and Sapphira were playing. They they gave a chunk of money, but they were justifying everything and using that to fit in, and that's what God calls them on. Verse 4, Peter says, why have you contrived this deed in your hearts? Like there's four, they, they thought about this. You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. And breathes, breathes his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. So Ananias, boom, he's dead. They carry him out. A few hours later, his wife comes in. Same conversation. She denies it. No, we gave all the money. Boom, falls dead. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Again, this is not about not giving enough money. This is about of a heart that craves recognition and praise, and a heart that was deceitful. Like, people read this like, Hood, why would they drop dead? I don't know. I don't know why God chose them. Like, there are hypocrites all over the Bible. There are hypocrites all over this room and on stage. Why doesn't God judge? I don't know. I don't know. But here's the reality. Whether God judged them then or later, the reality of judgment is it's true. And we have, we have to know this. Like, immediate judgment is not the norm. It's not how God usually works. Like, you don't have to fear. I don't think, don't quote me on this, I don't think you have to fear if you walk by the offering box on your way out and don't put anything there, God's going to kill you. I don't think that will happen. Last hour I was talking and this rug slipped out and I about killed myself on stage, which would have been a b- very ironic thing to happen today. I don't think you have to fear that. But here's what we have To know is sometimes God's judgment is instantaneous, but even if it's not, there is a reality of God's judgment. Like throughout the Bible, you'll see God's judgment come instantaneously on people. It's usually tied to big acts of God, the Exodus when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and this chick looks back and she turns to du- like it's usually around this big activity that God is doing, which here is this establishment of the church. But here's what we do need to know as people is there is a reality of judgment, that yes, God is a loving God, that God is also a just God. He's a just God who judges sin. And these two aspects of God, they they don't can't, it's not like, well, God's got to be either loving or just. No, he's both. He's both. That part of his love is his justice. And so here's the reality. And again, you've got, if you've been here before, you you know my heart in this. If you're new, my goal right now is not to scare the hell out of you, literally, get you to say some prayers so I don't go to hell. But the Bible's very clear there's a judgment coming. There's two judgments for believers. So the first judgment is this, is to appear before God and a judgment of, are you marked by the blood of the light? Like, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? That's the first judgment. Those whom have trusted in Christ, it is eternity with God. Those who rejected Christ will bow their knee, confess that Jesus is Lord, and then be separated from God for an eternity. That's what the Bible teaches. If you, if you don't like that message, It's not about me. It's about the Bible. Take up your issues with the Bible, not me. Just one one judgment for believers and non-believers. Now, for those who are in Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus, welcome into eternity with God, there's a second judgment coming. Now, a lot of you don't know this. There's a second judgment, okay? By the way, this first judgment is not like how good you were versus how bad you are. How I many old ladies you watch across the street? Like, that's, it's like, do you know Jesus? Here's the second judgment. Actually, the Bible gives us a metaphor for this. is that we as believers will appear before Jesus to give an account of our lives. And I don't think, at least in Scripture, we don't see this, okay, on February 13th I did this, not, not like that. But here's the image that, that Paul gives us of our lives being summed up by this big old pile of stuff. Sticks and stones and uh, metals and all this. And, and the, the image is that like, Jesus will light the pile, my, my life. And everything that's not worth much will just burn up. And what's left, like that withstood the fire, is like the good fruits of my life. And that's the second judgment, as this offering to Jesus to say, once it's all burned up, Here's my offering to you, Jesus. It's called the judgment seat of the Lamb. It's for believers. So here's the reality for Ananias and Sapphira. Whether judgment came to them on the spot or later, the reality is it's coming. Now, what does that do with the people? It's the last sentence in chapter five, and we'll end with this. And great fear Came upon all who heard it. That, that was the result of this happening. Now, when we see this word fear, I don't want you to think like everyone walked into church the next Sunday, like, oh my gosh, God's gonna like, kill me too. That's not the type of fear. L- let me say it like this uh, Anyone been in the Grand Canyon? I-, I haven't yet. I wanna be there one day. When you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, is there a fear there? Should be, right? But what I don't think what is good is you walk up to the Grand Canyon, like, oh my gosh, there's a the Grand Canyon, I gotta run away. That, that's not the type of fear. A fear is this, this healthy respect for the reality of something. Right? That that's a great fear. So if I'm at the edge of the Grand Canyon, there is a sense of like, oh awesome. Holy cow. like, look at this. At the same time, there's also this sense of, oh, that would be bad. <laughs> like awesome on one hand and awful on the other hand. You get what you get me? I think that's what it means by a fear of the Lord came upon the people. There is this sense of the goodness and, and the amazing reality of God and Jesus and the resurrection that marked these people. But then on the same hand, I think there was a healthy fear of I don't want to play games here. Like, games are cute, but not with God. I gotta take, got take this serious. So, so what do you do with this? My goal for today is not to have a big offering. I mean, if you want to give. But honestly, like, I don't want someone just to like, oh, I, mean, I just gotta give this knee-jerk reaction thing. I, I don't want that for you. I'd rather you sit down and wrestle with intention and ask some hard questions and take your time, not just knee-jerk react and give some big amount. But, but what do you do with this? It's a question. What does it look like for fear of God to come amongst Hill City Church? A sense of the awe, the goodness, the love of God who died on my pla- in my place for me mixed with this reality of like, he's a just God who judges sin and I want to keep growing. Yes, he loves me, and he gives me grace, but I don't want to live this entitled grace either. With anything, finances, sexuality, I don't want to live this entitled grace, so I just expect God to give me grace. What's it look like to keep pressing into, I want to know Jesus more. I want to see what he does in me more and more. I want to see my finances become like less like this and more open-handed. Like, What does that look like for you? If the average if average, the average among Christians is we give 3%, Hill City Church, let's just talk us. Forget every other church in the country right now. If Hill City Church, believers, this is your church. If we just like gave a minimum of 10%, we got an extra $2 million like that. What could God do? Here's one thing I'll tell you. There's a property over there that we wouldn't have to raise a. Uh, do a campaign for, be ready to do it. Let's just start building something. There'll be a next generation that we can begin to send all over the world because resources aren't a big a deal. There's families in our church that can adopt every orphan in this city because we have the money to help them pay for adoption. Weekly, I get emails about counseling and needing help, and I need to help... we give what we, I think what God's called us to. We got a counseling center in a month, like it's endless. What could God do in Hill City Church if the Spirit came upon us in a way where we were radical with our finances and radical in sharing the gospel? Watch out! Ah, oh, ah. Oh. Like I sit back here every single Sunday, right over here on the side. You probably see me, and I just look. I, this morning, you guys, I just look back at you guys are singing. And I was like, God, why would you do, Like, why would you allow me to be a part of this? See, like the next generation here, and growing and learning. I'm like, man, I wish I'd have been that in college. Anyone else here? Adults, gosh, like, why would you give us a part of this? And just to think about what could do as, what God could do as believers. And students, I'm talking to you too. You got money? You buy these $14 Frappuccino drinks. I see you with them. <laughs> like, what could, what could God do if the Spirit began to work in us like he did with these believers? It's so cool. So cool. And that's what I'm going to keep praying as we keep working through Acts. That we see these early believers and it does something in us where we with a healthy fear, have a sense of awe of the opportunity God's given us. It is so cool. We're going to receive communion as a reminder. Guys, you could write a million-dollar check right now, and it doesn't earn you anything with God. Everything we have is because God has given to us. We simply receive and respond. Communion's a picture of that. You bring nothing with you. You come and you receive. Let's pray together.